Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Can you think of a time when you were going the wrong direction and you didn't know it at first? I'll tell you a story about one. When Chad and I went on our first official date, we went hiking on Tiger Mountain, east of Seattle. It was like today, a pretty nice afternoon for February, and we started off from the parking lot, knowing that in a short distance, we should find a turnoff to the right, which would lead us up the hill to a rather nice viewpoint. So we hiked, we talked, and after a little while, I began to wonder where that lookout trail was. By the way, I'm telling this with Chad's permission. He said he guessed that it was coming up pretty soon, and I'd never been on the mountain, and it was his family's stomping, his family's stomping grounds. They were there all the time. So, okay, we kept going. Another 10 minutes went by, and there was still no trail. Are you sure? I asked. Trust me, he said. Okay, there was really nothing wrong with the path we were on. We were getting exercise and enjoying spending time together, except that I was beginning to suspect it wasn't going to take us where we wanted to go. And finally, seeing the February sun slanting lower through the trees, I insisted that it was time to turn around. So he agreed, and we headed back the way we had come. Sure enough, quite a long way back down the trail, we passed the turnoff, which we had missed. So we headed back to town, and we had dinner, and we were very glad to be warm and safe as darkness closed in. Now, you may think that's not a very propitious first date, but it has had a good result, because let me tell you, in 17 years of marriage, he has never been able to settle a debate by saying, trust me. <laughs> in today's scripture reading, Jesus reveals that he is on a mission to find the people who are on the wrong path, no matter how far gone they might be. Let's listen together to God's story. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 5. It's on page 1032 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along there. Verses 27 through 39. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. 
And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. The word of the Lord. Lord, help us as we hear this story and reflect on it to hear your call to us in wherever places we might find ourselves. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this story seems to move from the simple to the rather puzzling. Jesus calls, and Levi leaves it all, gets up and follows him. There is the Christian life in a nutshell. Die to your old life, rise again, follow. Simple enough. How do we get from there to this rather technical discussion about fasting and weddings and wineskins? It will help to begin if we realize that this story is part of a larger movement of episodes in which Jesus begins to come into conflict with this group called the Pharisees. Just before this, he healed a paralyzed man and baffled them by claiming the authority to forgive sins. And just after this, we will have a yet sharper disagreement about the way to honor the Sabbath. But if we step back even further we'll see that Luke puts even this series of controversies within an even larger frame, which is the calling of Jesus' disciples. The bookends of this section are the calling of Peter, which we looked at a few weeks ago, and the list of the 12 that have been called in chapter 6. I think that this context invites us to ask these stories two questions. First, what is Jesus' mission? What is he up to here? And second, who can be a disciple? Who is Jesus calling to join him? As we try to answer these, I'd like us to zero in on what I take to be Jesus' key statement at the very center of this text. And we'll take it one phrase at a time. It is, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, here we go. First, I have come. This phrase reminds us that Jesus is a man on a mission. There is something new in the very air. These first chapters of Jesus' public ministry in Luke are brimming with energy and action, and he keeps using the word amazement. People are getting healed, and these ever-present crowds are pressing in on Jesus with ever greater urgency. They find him at Peter's house the moment the Sabbath sun sets, begging for healing. They press in so close he has to get into a boat and pull away from shore just to teach them. And finally, they pack the house so that the paralytic's friends have to cut a hole in the roof. You can feel the excitement. And the news is spreading. So now the Pharisees have come to check out this new phenomenon. They show up just one story earlier. And not just from Galilee, but Luke says all the way from Judea and Jerusalem. They seem to be wondering, 
What is going on here? Jesus' answer takes the form of a picture. His coming, he says, is something like a wedding. Now, he could simply mean that it's an incredibly joyful occasion. A wedding was probably the single biggest party that most of his hearers would ever throw in their lifetime. Feasting, drinking that could last for days. Quite a party. But looking closely, we can see that there's even more to the image. It underscores that the new thing Jesus is doing is really a fulfillment of God's plan and promises. After Christmas, we picked up in Luke at chapter 4, where Jesus announced his ministry by reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. Do you remember? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I imagine that was quite enough for that one day's sermon. But if you keep reading in chapter 61, just a few verses later, the same speaker says, The Lord has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And in the very next chapter, which we read tonight, God again uses this image of a marriage to symbolize the healing and restoration he intends to bring to his people. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. So I think it is in that sense that Jesus says, I have come. You see, the promise has arrived. See, your Savior comes. The bridegroom is here. It's time for the party. Talking of parties brings us to our second phrase, which begins to answer the question, who is invited? Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous. Wait a minute. Not the righteous? Now that's a twist. As Israel languished under centuries of foreign occupation, there were certain most devoted Jews who became convinced that it was only by just zealously seeking after righteousness that they could turn away God's anger and restore his healing and blessing on their people. The Pharisees were one such group. Now it's probably, if you've been in Sunday school at all or even you have kids, you'll know that even Sunday school children probably can tell us that in any Jesus story, who are the bad guys? Usually the Pharisees, right? But let's resist that for just a moment. I want us not to write them off too quickly. You see, the Pharisees deeply desired righteousness. They were certain the future of their nation depended on it. And many ordinary people who were really fed up with the decadence and luxury of the priestly class, looked to the Pharisees for help, knowing how to be righteous in their daily life. So the Pharisees took that seriously. They put some serious thought into the task. They carefully compared one verse with another to try to tease out the meaning. They wanted to know, how does this apply now in our context? They sought to give really concrete guidance. How far can I walk? on the Sabbath? How much can I carry? How often should I fast? The most eminent teachers among them attracted eager students. 
the Pharisees were pretty strict about who they would accept in their brotherhood. At the very least, only those devoted to absolute commitment to purity. And there seems to be some indication that sometimes the criteria were more stringent. One maxim says, accept only a student who is wise, meek, and the son of wealthy parents. So the way Jesus is going about things has them intrigued but puzzled. They want to know, why are you so different? We try our best to stay pure, but you hang out with riffraff. We fast. You keep feasting. From Jesus' response, we can see that he's not opposed to fasting. It has its time and place. The Torah commanded fasting on the Day of Atonement because fasting is about realizing what we are most hungry for. It can be a mark of true repentance when we use it to express a realignment of our desires. We might fast, for instance, because we yearn for wholeness and freedom, and we know the kingdom is not yet here. We are hungry for righteousness. But like any disciplined practice, it can also function as a marker, a boundary. The Pharisees taught their disciples to fast two days every week. It seems that their deep yearning was to make a clear distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the in and the out. And if we are honest, I think we might need to pause a moment in sympathy with the Pharisees. Because that desire to draw distinctions is not limited to one religious position or even a political persuasion. It cuts right into what we are as humans. It's not even limited to religious people at all. I learned a lot eavesdropping on the blog of a friend of mine. For a while, she ran a funny and, and pretty successful blog about gardening and home, or productive homemaking. I don't know the first thing about gardening, but she's very funny, so I enjoyed it. But what was really interesting was to see how in any area of life where people are cultivating a shared vision of an ideal way of behaving, especially if it runs counter to the dominant culture, that tendency to apply labels and develop criteria to distinguish the real deal from the posers is incredibly strong. It was funny, but I'd watch her insist that the urban homesteader umbrella could be big enough to include yuppies with Starbucks in their hands who were growing their first tomato in a container. They had fights about this. I learned a lot about how my own communities often work. The Pharisees had no patience for posers. They expected to see righteousness rewarded, especially with concrete, immediate, even political benefits. So they were frustrated to the point of contempt with anyone who claimed to be part of Israel but did not seek after righteousness as they did. Those people were undermining their whole project. It is the Pharisees, actually, who introduce our third important word, sinners. See, Luke says that at Levi's banquet, there were tax collectors and others. But pointedly, when the Pharisees ask their question, they refer to them as tax collectors and sinners. Levi himself, called Matthew elsewhere in the New Testament, 
was one such object of contempt. To be honest, not just to the Pharisees. The people hated the Romans, their endless taxes, and perhaps most of all, the dirty collaborators who worked for them. And the entire system was ripe for extortion. The tax collectors collected as much as they could, and then whatever they didn't have to pay the Romans, they kept for themselves. They're pretty universally considered some of the worst sinners. So Jesus picks up their word and embraces it. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. In fact, this story of Levi's call could be seen as the climax of a series in which Jesus is interacting with all the people the righteous and respectable might want to avoid. A demon-possessed man, an uncouth fisherman, a contagious leper, a useless paralytic, and then the crowning indignity, even a tax collector. If the Pharisees are at all impressed by Jesus, they might be wondering why he isn't including them in his movement. They've been safeguarding the spiritual welfare of the nation. Surely they deserve a place at the table. And here Jesus is eating, drinking, hanging out with the sinners. Whatever they are lacking in, whether it's wealth, culture or education, health, or even integrity, or any intention toward God, Jesus refuses to keep them at an appropriate distance. What is he up to? Here it is. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our fourth word is repent. Does it sound like something you might see on a street corner sign, perhaps paired with Orburn? If so, we should reclaim this rich word because it takes us right into God's heart. One of the main words for repentance in Hebrew means literally to turn. To turn is to realize you are on the road to death and to reorient yourself in the direction of life calling God's people to make this about life-saving about face is the constant refrain of the prophets. Like Jeremiah, return, O faithless Israel, I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. Another word that is translated, repent, has several shades of meaning. It can also be used to mean have compassion or change one's mind but there seems to be a root sense of to draw a deep breath. One commentator summed it up as deep emotion that leads to action. I can resonate with that. When I am locked in a conflict with someone I love, there is often that moment of grace when I realize I don't have to keep this up. Suddenly, even though I'm angry, I see clearly that the next thing about to come out of my mouth is unnecessarily hurtful and will actually drive us further apart. If I'm open to that flash of grace, I take a deep breath instead. And as I let it out, I let go 
of my accusing words. This is the word that Job uses when after spending all his accusations against God, he gets a glimpse of God's majesty and he chooses to fall silent instead. Now if Hebrew uses earthy metaphors like breathing and walking, it's maybe not surprising that the Greeks talk about thinking. The New Testament term for repentance is metanoia. It's a change of mind. To repent is to embrace a new view of the world, a new imagination about what could be. You see the place where you are and the direction you're heading with different eyes. Perhaps you notice the sun is going down. Repentance is what God has always been up to. Jesus drives this home as he closes this particular encounter with a deeply puzzling parable, which of course is to speak redundantly, as after all, as Eugene Peterson reminds us, a parable fundamentally is a subversive form of storytelling, which functions not usually to clear things up, but to make them harder. This one certainly does the trick. So to do justice to this text, let's wrestle with this for a few minutes before I close. At first, it certainly sounds like Jesus is identifying his ministry with the new wine and the new garment, and that has been the go-to reading for many throughout the history of the church. And in the other places where this parable appears in the Gospels, that seems like a pretty obvious reading. But then in Luke, and only in Luke, comes this head-scratching last line Reminding us of what really everybody knows, old wine actually is better. It's true that new wine has an association in the Old Testament with the harvest. The new wine, the grain, and the oil mean rejoicing and abundance and God's provision, and you celebrate it right away. But old wine is what you choose for a really gourmet feast. For example, in another promise from Isaiah, he says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So when I have that rattling around in my head, I find this text difficult. And I'm here to tell you that studying it really carefully and academically doesn't really clear up the mystery, but only deepens it. An early group of the manuscripts even omit the last line, which tells me that somebody was frustrated with it, pretty early on, and others have multiple variations in the wording. So apparently, as long as this has been written down, it has been making people ask, what did he mean? Most scholars today resolve it by concluding that Jesus is being ironic, which is basically what we say when something is so unexpected, we don't think it can be real. So this would be something like, you Pharisees, you're just too satisfied with what you have, even to try what I'm offering. And that's where most of us can settle. I couldn't quite sit there. Because there's also something sad about the way that those parables have been used simplistically to champion Christianity at the expense of Judaism. As if Jesus came to say, your forms of religion are complete bunk, my wine is the real deal. New equals good, old is bad and inadequate is the thinking here. It's a really common script here. But we should be cautious because remember that in ancient culture, there's a high value on the old and the time-tested. Sort of was, the more ancient, the better. 
This was not a throwaway culture that thoughtlessly tossed out well-worn garments and used wineskins. They, too, had value. And it's certain to me that whatever else Jesus was doing, he was not coming to toss out the Torah. Look at just the few chapters of Luke that we've just read. Jesus had drawn on the scripture to resist temptation. Jesus read from Isaiah and claimed that in his person that prophecy was fulfilled. He even told a grateful man just healed from leprosy to go and perform the rituals prescribed in the law. So I don't think that the total inadequacy of the old or the superiority of the new is the point here. What if the puzzle is the point? What if we are not meant to stand as spectators in this exchange, but to be drawn in in a way that engages our imaginations? I see Jesus' audience nodding and even laughing. <laughs> Who would be so stupid as to tear up a brand new cloak? What dummy doesn't know that new wine needs new, stretchy wineskins to accommodate the gases that'll come with fermentation? Ha! The parable draws in the spectator, makes us participants, and then comes the turn. After all, what is old and what is new? Was it the Pharisees? with their novel interpretations, their commitment to an additional oral law who were really innovating? Had they lost sight of the very heart of the law? Was there something incompatible about their desire to label and Jesus yearning to rescue? Were they missing what God was up to? Maybe that's the point. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How does this Jesus story show us what repentance looks like? Well, we could say it's a little bit like calling the doctor. You won't do it unless you realize you are sick. I know I'm reluctant sometimes to make that call. I put it off, but when I am finally uncomfortable enough, and when I long to be well, and when I'm pretty sure there's nothing I can do about it on my own, I pick up the phone. What's amazing about this story is that Levi did not even call the doctor. The healer called him. The story is so compact that there is a lot we don't know. We don't know for sure, but given the buzz in the area, probably around Capernaum, Levi had almost certainly heard about Jesus before that day. It's likely he'd heard him teach. Maybe he found the message attractive, but hesitated. Did he think, perhaps, he was already too far gone, too invested in the life he had chosen, or too despised to ever be welcomed by someone like Jesus? Maybe it didn't even occur to him that blessing and wholeness and welcome could ever apply to someone like him. The story never tells us how Levi felt about Jesus, like the best literature, it only shows us. But something had made him ready to imagine a whole new way of doing life. So ready that he would stand up right in the middle of his books and his ledgers and his coins and his income and walk away from that tax booth with Jesus. We see through his actions that something new is happening. Repentance is not just something that takes place on the inside. It always results in a concrete change 
in our life. And what Levi's next action shows us is the contrary to all we might expect, repentance is joyful. The first thing he does is throw a big party. Food, wine, friends, and Jesus is the guest of honor. Because being rescued from the clutches of death is always a cause for celebration. So when you think of repentance, it's not self-hatred and blame. It's not groveling. And especially it's not despairing, like getting caught in a cycle of sinful tendencies. Repentance is a readiness for what Jesus is about to do. It's sensing his acceptance and forgiveness in a way you might not have known before. Sensing his willingness to empower and heal might look like letting your hard shell crack just a bit or your defenses drop. It might look like openness to that pang that comes with newness, like shedding a dragon's skin. Repentance is feeling so much lighter, stepping out on a new path, being embraced by a new community. I have come to call, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's good news. But the best news of all is not just the call, but the person who calls. See, we've seen that Jesus' mission is as old as God's love to redeem and rescue and heal. What's wonderfully new is the way he is doing it. Before this time, God had wooed his people through the voice of the prophets, and he'd given them concrete symbols in their worship in the temple to remind them of his love, and he'd promised them a future and a hope. But now, I have come. The bridegroom is here. God's incarnate presence among his people, full of power and healing and joy. That had never happened before. Now, Jesus' presence shows up the lie that anyone can call themselves more righteous than another by virtue of maintaining a white-knuckled grasp on purity. Now, sinners are invited to come and become disciples and be called holy, righteous, and redeemed. Jesus says to us, follow me. What a glorious invitation. Come to the party. Open your hearts. Turn around. See things a new way. And be whole. Jesus coming in the flesh carried our sins far away. And until that glorious day, having given us his spirit, is good news. Only those who are sure they are the righteous have a hard time hearing. For the rest of us, with our hungry hearts, it is never too late. We are never too far gone to answer Jesus' call. Repentance is not just a one-time response. We are, after all, prone to wander. But every single day is a new opportunity to turn. And walking that new path with our new master 
is the joyful way that leads to life.